Let's get into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Been in this verse, we've been in this series, equipped, looking to be ready, prepared for the world that is around us. We need to know how to handle the stuff. We need to know what God has called us to do. We need to know what tools He's given us. We need to know how to use the tools. It's important. Abraham Lincoln said that if I had eight hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend six hours sharpening the axe. That's smart. What do we do? Swing away, baby. We don't sharpen nothing. What's happened in the church today is we've lost the art of discipleship because it has fallen on the church structure. Same with evangelism. It was intended to be with the individual. What is discipleship? It's taking somebody under your wing, doing life with them, letting them watch the good and the bad, letting them see how you respond to circumstances, how you overcome the enemy, how you have victory and how you have failure, seeing all of that. But what have we done? We've turned it into a class. We say, yeah, oh, you got to go to discipleship class. You, gotta, you know, when you go to a church, a lot of times they'll have membership classes. Where you go into, and, and there's nothing wrong with any of this stuff. I'm not saying any of this is bad. But that's not really what the biblical definition of that term was. It's kind of like having a revival meeting. How do you schedule that? Revival in and of itself is unexpected, uh, in a sense. But if you schedule it, it's like, oh, yeah, this is our revival meeting. Well, was it? Were people revived? Or were they just excited for a short time? I mean, we use all these buzzwords and we use these terms, but we never stop to think about what is going on. And so the idea of of church being the discipleship mechanism was never a thought in the mind of God. Same with it being the evangelism mechanism. It was the individual that comprised the church that that was supposed to happen with. So when we come together, what are we doing? Because I spend a lot of time rehashing and going over the stuff from the previous week and talking about staying in long periods of time, making sure we understand it. We're sharpening the axe. Because the axe isn't getting swung in this room. It should be getting swung out there. The problem is, is we'll take stuff in and we're like, boy, that was good. Can't wait till next week. I'm hoping that's what you're saying. (laughs) Maybe some of you are like, whew, thank God that's over. (laughs) Either way, don't send me any emails. But the thing is, guys, is that we have got to continually, it does us no good to sharpen the axe if we're not going to use it. Having a bright and shiny axe is not the point. It's the utilization of it. Take the tools that God has given us, and let's go do the work that he's called us to do. So with that being said, let's jump into Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We've been talking about the armor of God. Why? Because it's important. Paul took a lot of time putting this together. This is kind of what it looks like. We've got this idea here that we are being suited with something to be able to go out and A, offensively do battle, and B, defensively be prepared. Because every one of them have a point. The belt of truth is what everything locked into. Without that, it all falls apart. Every piece is designed for the individual. It was put together and it was meant to work as a unit, a cohesive unit. Not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It was all strategically designed. 
So when we talk about the armor and what we're supposed to do, every component is important, especially the last one. We've been talking about this in the spirit concept, praying without ceasing in the spirit. What does that mean? As we've shown you through scripture is that that is a reference to these praying in tongues. Now we're going to dive into that a little bit more, but we've been looking at this concept of what that means. Because that is not very well received in today's church culture. Some thought it's ended, some thinks it's satanic. Some will tell you, if you go to one of them churches that prays in tongues, you're going to get filled with the devil. You can do that anywhere, to be truthful. The thing is, is we've got to know what it is. And so as we've got into this and what the point of it is, we began to look at the concept that tongues was not the point. Tongues was the byproduct of the infilling of the Holy Spirit and being endued with power from on eye. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Those are the three components of the Jewish scripture. So all of scripture was written about Jesus. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. He needs to do that a little bit more today, don't you think? Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached by his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And y'all were witnesses of these things. So he's telling them that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one begotten Son set apart by God, must suffer and rise from the dead. It was all part of Scripture. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of the, my Father upon you. You tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, and he blessed them, and it came to pass that he blessed them, that he was parted from them, carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. That's the end. Now, what are we talking about? We, we've looked at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, understanding what was happening in that moment. Because he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. So number one, they're going there for the Feast of Pentecost. Every able-bodied male Jew was supposed to be in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. Then the argument is, is, well, where were they in the moment that the Holy Spirit came upon them? I say it is in the temple. Some will argue, and that's okay, because frankly, who cares? I'm more concerned of the event happening versus its location. Okay? Right. It's kind of like one of those things. When you're a child and you're having a birthday party, all you care about is the cake and the presents. Where it's at doesn't really matter. Give me some cake. Give me some gifts. That's it. So where that happens doesn't matter. How many were there? Well, in Acts chapter 1, it says 120 were in the upper room. But we know for a fact during Acts chapter 2, when the event takes place, it says Peter stood up with the 11. So we know the 12 were there. Were there more? Maybe. I don't know. Again, don't get caught up in the semantics, but I want to be as authentic as I can, and I want to be as true to Scripture as I can. I do not want to conflate Acts 1 and Acts 2 as if they were the same day, the same event they weren't. There's at least 10 days of separation. Now, what is happening in that moment? As I've said, we've got a new covenant that has been taken place. We have the new high priest being Jesus, our high priest. We have the new temple that's you and I and everybody was there. And then, of course, we have the last part where he is bringing the world back together as one. Now, let me quickly go through this. We know that we have a new covenant. It's based upon better promises. Jesus himself uh, is, is the uh, one who puts that together. When we talked about covenantal theology, the bottom line is this. That covenant was not cut with you and with God. It was cut between the Father and the Son on your behalf. Good news, you can't break it. It's a beautiful thing. Because there are covenants that could be broken. So this new covenant is crucial to the understanding. It's not like the old. The old has 613 laws that you had to follow. If you missed one, you broke the covenant. 
Thank God for that. Now, with that comes the new high priest. Why a new high priest? Well, because the only way the high priest worked underneath the old covenant was to be of the line of Aaron. Jesus did not qualify. But this new high priest, being Jesus himself, is the mediator. Now, we, we lose out on this language because we don't understand the priesthood. We don't have the high priest, so to speak, or any of that kind of stuff. But this was the guy on the Day of Atonement who would enter into the presence of God. The most holy place one day a year. He had to sacrifice for the nation of Israel. He had to sacrifice for himself. There was a whole bunch of stuff that he had to go through. He was the representative of that old covenant bringing atonement once again for one year to the nation of Israel until he had to do it again. But Jesus being a better high priest, the perfect offerer of the sacrifice and the offering took his blood into the temple, cleansed it once and for all. Now because of that we have a temple not made with hands, but you and I filled with the Holy Spirit. So now, instead of the nations going to the place where the presence of God was, the presence of God is now going out to the entire world. You guys with me? You guys should be a little more excited about this, because that's you and I. I mean, you think about what they went through. Think about it. We take for granted that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we have the presence of God with us at all times, that when we need something from God, we don't have to go to a priest, bring a sacrifice, jump through a bunch of hoops, and wait our turn in line. We should go to God. We don't need a mediator because Jesus is our mediator. That's how we enter boldly into the throne room of grace. We've got to comprehend that and not take it for granted. So the last and final piece of this, as I've talked about, is that the reclaiming of the world together as one. The separation of nation takes place in Genesis chapter 10. And then God calls Abraham, taking a nation as his inheritance for himself. I don't want to get into all of that again, but Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Psalm 82 talks about these different components of how the world was separated. There were angels placed over the top of them, supposed to draw people back to Yahweh. However, they took worship for themselves. These are the false gods that they talk about in Scripture, so on and so forth. Bottom line is this. Suddenly, with confusion, with speaking all of these languages that they did not learn, the world is coming back together as one. Now we are one people, united through Jesus. That's exciting. So why do we go through all of this? We go through all of this because we have to know what's happening in the moment that the Holy Spirit came upon them. As he said, you will be endued with what? Power from on high. He didn't say, guess what, boys and girls, when this happens, you're going to be speaking languages you didn't learn. That's not what he said. That is a byproduct. It is a sign that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. In, in uh, Acts chapter 10, we saw that with Cornelius. Peter shocked that the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. He's not supposed to be there. He's a Jew. You don't go into the home of Gentiles. And then as he explains it to the Jews back in Jerusalem, he said, listen, I get it. I was there, but here's the thing. Just like the Holy Spirit came upon us, he fell upon the Gentiles. How did they know? For they all spoke with tongues and magnified God. What language were they speaking? I don't know. Was it a language? I don't know. That's, but the bottom line is this. Is if... The Holy Spirit is supposed to bring power. Where did he go? I mean, the 12. That's where it started. We'll go through this more in detail later, but, but they took that and, and, and provided, laying hands on, if you will, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is what we're going to talk about today. So that power was endued upon multiple people. You see it with Philip. As an example, he wasn't one of the 12. So, 
Where did this go and what happened? Well, one thing that we have to understand and wrap our heads around is a part of the new covenant, there was a promise of the Spirit. We know that the 12 had the Holy Spirit prior to Acts chapter 2. We know that because in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, what's the first day of the week? Sunday. It's the interactive portion here. Okay. We'll, we'll get there. Thank you. That's why we keep him around. When the doors were shut and where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what happened there? Is this just... Fanciful talk, colorful language by John. He breathed on them the breath of life, the Spirit of God. He told them to receive. Did he mean it? I would assume so. So then why did he tell them to wait in Jerusalem? We have to ask these questions. Because we take this stuff for granted and we don't really have good answers. But if he told the twelve to uh, receive the Holy Spirit as he breathed on them there, then why did he tell them to wait for the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1? Because maybe they're not the same thing. And that's what we have to look at. So, getting into this new covenant, where do we get these ideas? Because the belief today by a lot of people is that when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, that is all the Holy Spirit that we get, and that's it, and we have it, and maybe God can use you in a supernatural way, but it's only if it's His will in any capacity. Okay? So, let's look at where these concepts come from. So, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to read a little, a little further than normal in this, but I want you to see the context of what's going on. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to start in verse 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman and her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. So what are they talking about? Why would you leave the promised land? God had orchestrated and given you this land, but they would leave. Why? They would take it for granted. They were worshiping idols and false gods, these gods of these other nations. Their job was to be separated. One of the signs of that old covenant was the Sabbath keeping. They would maintain the Sabbath, which sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And so there were all of these things, and what was that doing? It was profaning the name of the Lord. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations for wherever you went. So now why is he doing this? He's getting to the this. But why is he doing it? It's for his name's sake. What about his name? He made a promise. And whether Israel maintained their end of the bargain, God made a promise. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Lord. Now, that's important. I am Yahweh, the God. In Psalm 82, it says, God sits among the thrones of the Elohim, both Elohim, gods and little gods. 
The nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed uh, in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your, all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. Then you should dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you ne need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that you were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Now, what is he talking about? They need to repent. What do they need to repent of? Well, they are blaspheming his name and the way that they are carrying themselves. His covenantal people were not keeping his commandments. They were worshiping false gods. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on there. If you'd like to read about it, I'd encourage you to do so. It's in Ezekiel. But he talks in here, he's like, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, what is he talking about here? This is the concept of mikvah. How did one become clean? There was two parts. It was the shedding of blood and the physical act of cleansing with water. It had to be living water. When they would mikvah, or they would spiritually bathe, so to speak, we would call it baptism today, is that they would go into the water, and as long as it was living water, living water was moving water. Any water that was moving, so a spring, an underground uh, river, something like that, or rain, also counted. If they had a pot of water that was sitting here, that is not living water, it is stagnant. It has to be moving. However, one drop of rain hits it, it is now considered living water. It takes one drop to cleanse the entire pot. So he is saying by his blood, he will cleanse the people. How did they cleanse the temple? During the Day of Atonement, they would go and they would take the blood of the animal, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the goats, and they would cleanse all of these things. Now, fast forward to the time of the New Testament, what did Jesus do? He took his own blood, cleansing the heavenly temple. You see that in the book of Hebrews. So he is taking all of this away. He is cleaning them. What did they have to do? Repent. That's it. They turn from their ways. He cleansed them. And what does he do? Puts a new spirit within them and he puts his spirit within them. They're now his people. So we see all of this kind of coming together in the book of Ezekiel. You see that? We've got the new covenant, which is the promise of the Father, the high priest making that sacrifice and the cleansing, and the new temple, the Spirit coming within. Okay? Now, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the other part of this. These are the two passages that are often looked upon. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, you know where the term new covenant comes from. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Now, which covenant is that? Because you know he made a whole bunch of covenants, right? Well, he specifies what covenant was made when he took them out of Egypt. It was the Mosaic covenant. The one that had conditions attached. I will be your God. You will be my people. You keep my commandments. You will be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. Do you accept these terms in which they did and a sacrifice was made and it was ratified? So it was conditional. So it's not like that one. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband of them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, this sounds an awful lot like the book of Romans. In fact, uh, Neil was teaching through Romans this morning quite a bit. And this all harkens back to that thing. So in this concept is where we get the idea of the new covenant. With that comes the new high priest and, of course, the new temple. All done by whom? Not you and me. You and I are the recipient of this covenant. That is it. So now we have to look at this promise of the Father. We have to begin to understand something that's taking place here. Because this is crucial. In fact, this is probably the most important stuff. Can you get into heaven without the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being endued with power from on high? Of course you can. Those two things are not, not uh, connected in any way. Not whether you can or not. The question is, should you? I mean, I hear a joke. Somebody said, can you get to heaven without the power of the Holy Spirit? And somebody said, well, I don't want to go to Walmart without the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you've been to Walmart, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, just throw on a new set of pajama pants and head on out. <laughs> Hallelujah. So all of those things are crucial. So we have to look at this. So there's something about that moment in, in Acts chapter 2 that comes to a head that is laid out in Scripture. In the Gospels, I should say. Because in the Gospels, there are four things that are mentioned in all four Gospels, and only four. There are multiple things that are mentioned by one or two, sometimes three, but there are only four things that all four Gospel writers bring up. I'll give you a guess on the first three. Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. That was kind of a given, right? But the fourth one is what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because what we saw in Acts chapter 2, as I'm going to show you, is the very thing that is mentioned by all four gospel writers. So let's go there. Matthew chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. I know that for some of you guys, this is, you've heard this before, you understand it. But the thing is, is that this is the foundation to getting to that point. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when many... Or when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Now who's talking here? This is John the Baptist. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, there's a whole lot of things that are going on there, but what do we see here? John, in one sense, is not this person. The person coming after him is mightier than him, and it is him that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You guys see that? Okay, let's look at Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 6. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his weight, and he ate locusts and, and wild honey. He preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, a whole lot going on here, and I'll, I'll, I'll go into this in detail in a minute, but who baptized with water? John. Who's going to baptize with the Spirit? The one coming after him. We don't necessarily know his name at this point. I mean, we do, but they didn't. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. 
Now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Are you guys picking up on a trend here? It seems as if they're all saying the same thing. Now, this is easy to remember because you got Matthew 3 and Luke 3, and then you got Mark 1 and, of course, John 1. And let's go to John 1, and I'm going to break this down a little bit for you. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. They said to them, well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, before we go on, let me break this down a little bit. The priests and Levites are sent by the Pharisees. Who is this John? Because this John is raising a ruckus. Now, as I said, you've got to understand culturally what's happening here. There's a number of beliefs that are undergirded here that if you don't understand the culture, you may miss out on the nuance. So the first thing is, here's a dude who is wearing camel hair. He's eating locusts, which could be locust tree because locusts were unclean, so I'm going to say it was likely a fruit, not the bug, okay? Just saying. And wild honey. If you guys want to try locusts, I can see if I can make that happen, but whatever. But he's here and he's baptizing people. Now, why is he baptizing people? When a person was baptized, there were several sects of Judaism. There was the Essenes, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were the four main ones. And, of course, there were other ones. And when the people would take disciples to them, they would baptize their disciples. And they were associating themselves with the teaching of that rabbi. In this case, it would be John. You see that in John 19 where it talks about we've only been baptized with the baptism of John. They had associated themselves with the teaching of John. So why is this raising a ruckus? Why is this such a big deal? Well, suddenly this guy who is not associated with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, or the Herodians, is baptizing people. Hey, a new sect of Judaism is being formed. What do you think people in power think about that? They don't like it. So they're questioning it. But they have to be careful. Because when they ask who he is, he said, I am not the Christ. In other words, I am not the long-awaited Messiah. Because whose job was it to investigate that? As I told you, it was the job of the Pharisees. Because they were in charge of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court. And so they would investigate any time somebody said this might be the Messiah. They were waiting on this political figure. Then they asked him, are you Elijah? He said no. Now why did they ask that question? Well, if you study Elijah, he too wore camel hair, ate locusts, ate honey, and was a prophet. Okay? He was taking people himself. Then they said, are you the prophet? Well, who is the prophet? Very likely a reference to Moses, because they thought Elijah and Moses were going to come back. They're waiting on them to return. And he said no. So they said, well, then tell us who on earth you are. 
and they want to know, why are you baptized? If you are not the Christ, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet. So what does that tell us? They're expecting the Christ, Elijah, and what I believe is Moses, and those are the people who will be baptizing folks. And then he goes into the last part. I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. So Jesus is on the scene. They don't know him. It is he who's coming after me is preferred, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, this is a powerful statement. It makes no sense to us. But at that time, when you were the servant of an individual, you would often undo their shoes, and you would carry them for them, or whatever the case may be. They wore sandals, okay? So he's saying that I am worthy less than a servant to this one. Very powerful statement. He is putting himself down here. He is making it known to these that, listen, what I'm doing here, I'm just laying the path. The dude after me, that, that's the guy. Now let's look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why is that such a big statement? The Lamb of God, this is the first time. If you, if you go through and you study the concept of that sacrificial history, this is the first time that that lamb is associated with a named person. It wasn't until Isaiah that you realized that that lamb is a person. This is the whole Passover event taking place. He takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I do not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. He's laying the foundation. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, and upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is is the Son of God. Now John goes into a little more detail than the rest of it, but what do we see? This concept here is laying out that there are three baptisms in Scripture. Three of them. Not one, not two, there are three. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Okay? Let's look at this. As for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members are one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, having all been made to drink into one Spirit. The first thing that we have to deal with is the word baptism. Because as soon as I say it, what goes to your mind? Water baptism. That's what we associate it with exclusively. But that's not the case, because what would that mean? The baptism in the Spirit is the baptism in Christ. That we're baptized in the body. In other words, we are associated with, so we are born again. So we are baptized into Christ. That's number one. When you are born again, you are baptized into Christ. By whom? Who does that? The Holy Spirit. We're baptized by one Spirit. Right? By one Spirit, we were all baptized. So, we're baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys see that? You all with me? I'm going to prove this thing to you, not even from a theological standpoint, but from a grammatical standpoint. Some of you are going to love that. The rest of you, which is most normal human beings, don't care much about grammar. Okay? Now, the second baptism... What takes place after that? It is the baptism in water. It's what we think of. But, just like this, this is done by somebody. Who is that somebody? 
Well, in that case, it was John. But it can be anybody. It's a disciple. It can be any. A disciple of Christ. A follower of Christ. I'm going to just put disciple, but you guys know. Any follower of Christ can baptize somebody in water. What is that doing? You are now associating yourself of the teaching of Christ. We're baptizing in the name of Jesus. Don't get caught up in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus stuff. doesn't matter. You are associating yourself with the teaching of Jesus. You become a follower of the way. You are announcing to the world. That's how the Jews did it. We do it today, and we don't even know what it means. We just do it. Okay? I may have told you guys this. I was baptized as a kid in a horse tank. They promised me the water would be warm. They lied. It was in the back room of the church with no heat. It was awful. But bottom line is, we made the decision. So we've got two different things that are going on. The baptism into Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is what does it. The baptism in the water, which is the sign that we are now following Jesus in this new covenant, is done by any disciple. Does it have to be the pastor? No, it does not. In fact, it probably shouldn't be. Because there's a lot more of you than there is me. Okay? The last one. Well, let me look at it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. forgot to read that. It's crucial. But according to what we read, in all four Gospels, who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? Bueller? Jesus did. You're, this is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did it not say, one who's coming is mightier than I, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit? It did say that. It said that in all four Gospels. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in the sense that it is the Holy Spirit who performs the act. This is the baptism of a disciple, because it is the disciple of that is performing the act. In this case, according to all four Gospels, this is the baptism of in the Holy Spirit that is performed by Jesus himself. So can this and this be the same thing? Grammatically, it cannot. You don't even have to know the Bible that well. You just had to pass fourth grade English, which was a stretch for some of us. So we've got three different things that are taking place. Do you, I want to make sure this is clear because it's so crucial that we see this. Because once somebody's born again, these two things don't necessarily happen automatically. What did we read in Luke 11? Will not the Father give good gifts to anyone who asks? What is the gifts he's referencing? The gift of the Holy Spirit to all those who ask. You see, we have, by, by long-time church theology and, and, and bad ideas, have just assumed that when the Holy Spirit comes in us, that's it. But that's not the point of this. This has a whole different thing. Look at Acts chapter 1 again. Verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, let's just stop. What did he say? John did this. You're going to get this in a few days. Right? Right? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, 
Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in his own authority. They're wanting to know, is it now? That is his return and when that is going to happen. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the event in Acts chapter 2. And that is what we're talking about right here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And Ezekiel said, I put my, his spirit in us. In Jeremiah, he said he put his spirit in us. These are not the same thing. Why is he going to do that? And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This concept is so crucial to understand because this is not taught today. And I'm trying to break it down as simply as I know how to do to make sure that we understand that the filling of the Holy Spirit at the moment that we are born again, becoming the temple of God, is not the same when we are endued with power from on high to do what? Be His hands and feet in the world. It is not the same thing. This concept of three baptisms is laid out in Scripture. We just often miss the nuance. So, let's go to 1 John chapter 5. Thank you, Neil, for reading this this morning. I don't know where Neil is. There he is right there. Neil has now taken Janice's place of stealing my thunder on Sunday mornings. 1 John chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also uh, loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, and when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world, but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now let's pause there for a moment. The overcoming of the world is your faith in Christ. That's it. It doesn't talk about you being victorious. It's about you believing what Jesus has done. That's it. Guess what? If you can do that, you have overcome the world. Don't walk back into it. You are victor, victorious. Now, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in the heaven. The Father the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. Now that's interesting to me. Because when we see this, we've got the blood of Christ. He is the Word made flesh. Without that, there is no remission of sin. That Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's crucial. That's what brings us here. And then we get this concept of water does associate pretty well with the idea of the baptism of water. But then there's the Spirit. And it says that these three agree as one. In other words, they agree, maybe we should have all three. Should you be born again and not be baptized? No. Why would you not be? Will you go to heaven if you're not? Absolutely. But we should do. Same here. These three agree as one. Well, we've separated them and made them into different things. But they agree as one, but you can survive without all three. But you're missing the point. Now, we see Moses throughout Scripture being a deliverer of Israel. He's the one that led them out of Egypt. 
with the hand of God upon him, all the ten plagues, all that kind of stuff. We've gone into that stuff before. But he was a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18, Acts 13, compare Moses as a deliverer to the Jesus. And what I'm going to show you here in 1 Corinthians 10 is another passage showing these three things connected together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with, the, uh, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now let's, let's go very slowly. All their fathers. So, so here we've got Paul hearkening back to the Exodus. The 40 years, all of that kind of stuff. What well, They were under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. Then he says, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. What is he referencing? Well, first of all, again, if we're going to take the strict term of baptism in the way that we think of it, this doesn't make any sense. Because when they crossed the Red Sea, did Moses stop for a minute and say, hey guys, see that sidewall over there? I'm going to just dunk you in there real quick, pull you right back out. That doesn't make any sense. And how is one baptized into Moses? And how are you baptized into a cloud? I mean, just think about that. So what is Paul talking about? He is talking about this, Moses being a type of Christ. The sea is a type of the water, the cleansing water. They're, they're moving from out of God's plan into the promised land is where they were supposed to go, and then baptized in the cloud. The cloud is often seen as a type of the Holy Spirit. Cloud by day, fire by night. This presence of God filled the temple. They said they could see. I mean, you guys see this? I want to make sure you're getting this. This is so important to understand because we've lost this today. Because we just assume that we've got it all figured out. And we don't. Look what he says in verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food. What is that? It's manna. Manna from heaven. All drank the same spiritual drink. What is that? It's the water from the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Now that's interesting to me. Because we know that that rock comes into play two times. The first time Moses was instructed to strike the rock. And he did. And water flowed out. The second time, he was supposed to speak to that rock. But he got a little angry. Kids must have been pestering him that day. Rough day at the office. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it again. And water came out. But according to this, that rock followed them. Can you imagine? What was the rock? It was Christ. Now, why does that matter? You think about this for a moment. Christ's body had to be bruised and crushed for our sins. How many times? One time. He only had to be struck once. Once that's been done, all you have to do is ask to receive. Had Moses followed through, he didn't get to go into the promised land as a result of this. Had he followed through, this would have been a picture of the gospel in that moment. Yeah, I'm with you. I remember that. I remember that moment, right? See, this is what's going on here. That rock apparently followed them, so the first pet rock, Jesus came up with it apparently. <laughs> this is what's going on here. But we see the baptism into Moses, in the cloud, in the sea. These three are associated one. Let's go on. 
Verse 6, now these things became our examples. What things? All the things he's talking about. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. You see, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on in the events that talked about the drinking from the water, the, the manna from heaven, and all the things that took place there. He's saying that all of these became examples to us, and they were written down for our admonition, so we don't have to go through that. But we can see the picture, the typology that is being set up in the Old Testament as we look at this and we say, okay, I get it. So even back then, this concept was alive and well. But thankfully, to some of the early church fathers, we've thrown a good portion of this out. Because that's helped us out, hasn't it? We're doing great. The church may have never been at a weaker point than it is today. It takes one scary virus and we shut down. We run and cower. We don't do the work of the ministry. Now, that is true in America. It's not true to a lot of the world. But the bottom line is this, is that if we're a dude with power from on high, and we already are victorious, what are we afraid of? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He says, be a good cheer, because I've overcome the world. He told Paul, he said, listen, I've chosen you, and it's not going to go well for you. So I want you to spread the gospel as long as it's convenient, and the government okays it. That is not what he said. That's the problem, was we've got a get-along mentality. What happened to us standing up for truth, for righteousness, in the American way? I mean, that's the thing, guys, is that we are cowards because we are not so full of the Holy Spirit that we boldly stand on truth. We back down and hide. We won't stand up for what's right. Churches don't talk about sin anymore, about the blood of Christ that, that was shed them because why they don't want to offend somebody they don't want to scare somebody else we don't want to confront sin head-on we want to skirt around it and we're like well we'll eventually get to the message i had a friend of mine that grew up in a methodist church and this is no knock on methodism by any means because not all of them are like that but he did, it wasn't until he went to a full gospel church the first time he ever heard the term salvation mentioned and he had to be born again and he went back to the pastor and he said why on earth did you never mention this 25 years he went to that church never once now, to be fair, there's a good chance he wasn't paying attention all 25 years, all right? <laughs> but the guy's like, well, I guess I just assumed everybody knew. Why would you make that assumption? You see, we have to get back to the basics. We've got to sharpen this axe. We're not swinging it in this room. We need to be swinging it out there. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, because this is where it all comes to a head. Verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, there were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and appeared upon them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Was that the point? Nope. The tongues got the people's attention. The sound got the people's attention. But what happens after this? You see, something happens to these 12 that were there that day. They were no longer cowards. Peter bowed down to three people at the cross, one being a little girl. He didn't have the guts to stand up. 
But watch what happens after this. He stands up. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, verse 37. And he said, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, he's got their attention. What does he tell them? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children and all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. What do we see? Repent, be baptized, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is associating the gift of the Holy Spirit with the same act that just happened to them. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that this is one and the same. We've got to be beyond this. Guys, we just laid another brick today. We're going to lay another brick next week. And next week, we're going to keep sharpening that X every single week. Because we have got to get back to the point where the church is powerful. Where the church is not cowardly. Where the church is unmoved by the circumstances and events taking place in our world. He said if your faith is in him, you are victorious. What are we afraid of? If a scary virus takes us all out, we're going to be fine. We're going to be better off. Your back will stop hurting. I don't have to play golf anymore. (laughs) And Paul would be grateful. I mean, guys, we have got to take the idea of to live is Christ and to die is gain and run with it. But we've got the idea to live as Christ and be afraid of death. 